What is your statement of faith? What is your statement of faith? And when I say that, I don't mean what is this paper that you wrote down stating your faith. Most organizations have a statement of faith, right? What's your statement of faith? What is, what is the way that people know when they look at you or look at your life that you're a Christian? Christians have always been trying to figure this out. You know, they're always trying to figure out, how do I let everybody know that I'm a Christian? And there's been lots of creative ideas. I think probably the most creative one was to put a fish on the back of your car, right? Super good, like that, boom, I'm a Christian. That's great, right? I mean, the intent is good. Hey, I'm, I'm a Christian, got a fish in the car. Uh, there's some other more creative ones. I remember in 2000, early 2000s, it was really cool if you were a Christian to get a crown of thorns around your arm. Not that there's anything wrong with that. I think it's just still really cool, okay? But that was like, I just remember being like, oh, that, that guy has a crown of thorns. Like, he must be, or a cross, you know, on his, uh, wearing a cross was a way of identifying, that, hey, I'm a Christian. Um, if, if for, for many years, right? Cross necklaces, cross earrings, uh, things like that. Uh, for me, in my life, when I think back through my Christian journey, I think of seasons where it's almost embarrassing, thinking about things I used to do because I really wanted to make sure people knew I was a Christian. Uh, I remember I went to this church where uh, the really spiritual people had Bibles that were really worn. You know what I'm saying? And they had like these special custom leather covers on them, and it just looked like they stood out there in the rain with it or something. Uh, and I remember thinking, oh, like that's what real Christians do. And they always carried it everywhere with them, and so I did that. You know, and I got my Bible covered, and I still have the Bible. Um, but, uh, yeah, so, so I thought that was what, the way I could identify. People would let me know, or that I could let people know that I was a Christian. Uh, what, what should be our statement of faith? What, what should be the thing that, that when people see us, they go, there's something about that person that identify as a, a Christian or a follower of Christ? Well, I would suggest to you it's not uh, wearing a cross, not that there's anything wrong with that. I would suggest to you it's not fish on your car, not that there's anything wrong with that, unless you're a terrible driver. Um, I would suggest to you it is having a cross-shaped life. A cross-shaped life. There's a word for that, and I want to introduce it to you. It's going to be the title of our sermon. Uh, it's called cruciform. Have you heard this term, cruciform? It means taking the shape of a cross. So the cruciform life is what I would like to appeal to you that I think Paul has been trying to appeal to us as we go through his letter to the Philippians. Um, it is the cruciform life. Our life should increasingly as we grow look more and more and more like the shape of the cross. And I'll explain what I mean by that. I'll tell, you, I'll tell you what I don't mean by that. I don't mean that like somehow like Jesus you are going to live a sinless life, um, become God, uh, unless you want to be a Mormon, um, you know, lit, they believe that. Okay, uh, you know, I, I don't believe that you're, you're somehow going to atone for the sin of the world. That's not what I mean. What I mean is that by living the cross-shaped life that you are increasingly walking the, 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 the footsteps of Christ. Have you heard it said that we are not only to have, the, have faith in Christ, we are also to have the faith of Christ. Christ. We are to walk the path that he walked. We are to carry the cross that he carried. We are to die the death that he died and raise the resurrection that he rose and ascend the ascension that he ascended. Um, we are to take on in our life the shape and the posture of the cross, the cruciform life. I believe and I'm convinced this is what should be seen about us primarily that connects us to the cross. I think it's the, the appeal that Paul is making here uh, in our text. Paul mentions this in 2 Corinthians 4, 7 through 12. I'll just read it. He says, but we have this treasure 
and jars of clay. He's talking about this treasure, meaning we, we live in these fragile, earthly vessels that are almost kind of designed to be shattered. You ever feel like that with your body? It's like, this thing was just, it's just fragile. The littlest thing knocks me on my feet. So we have this treasure in jars of clay. Why? To show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. He says, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. Listen, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus. What does he mean by that? Does he mean wearing a cross on, on, on your necklace or does he mean something else? Carrying in the body the death of Jesus. Why? So that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake. Paul is saying that, that what it looks like to be a Christian is to live the death of Christ. To live the cruciform Life, it's what the call is. And I wonder sometimes, I've been thinking a lot about this lately, as we have a desire here as a church to make disciples. Uh, I've been thinking lately about this. I wonder if in some ways in the West, in the American church, we haven't offered people something different than that. I wonder sometimes if maybe we haven't um, done what Satan did in, the, in, the, in the, the wilderness. Remember, he came to tempt Jesus. And, and you remember what the temptation for Jesus was? He wanted to give Jesus the crown without the cross. Remember that? Hey, why don't you skip the cross and just go right for the crown? In fact, I'll give you all authority, Satan said to Jesus, right? And what's he trying to get Jesus to do? He doesn't want him to live the cross-shaped life. He doesn't want him to live the cruciform life because therein is salvation. He wants him to skip it. And I wonder if sometimes when we get up and we preach a gospel that has a crown but doesn't have a cross if we're actually preaching a false gospel. I wonder sometimes when we get up and preach a, a gospel that doesn't have the, the cross if we're doing what Satan did in the garden. Remember when he told Adam that he could have the glory without the obedience? That God actually has something for you in the way that you have or the way that, that you get it is to go around surrendering, surrendering to God. I wonder if we haven't offered the crown without the cross. I wonder if we haven't offered the sacrificial lamb without the sovereign lion. I wonder if we haven't called people to conversion instead of discipleship. I think what we are going to see in the next five to 10 years is we're gonna see a massive clarifying uh, of, of who is truly following Jesus and who is not. And what we will realize is that in many ways in this country, maybe we have made hundreds of thousands of converts, but have we truly made disciples? And were we ever right to separate those two things? Did Jesus ever separate those two things? I will push hardly on this idea, week after week, that you can be a convert and not a disciple. The call to be a follower of Jesus was a call to follow. And I wonder sometimes if because we call people believers rather than followers, if we've confused that a little bit. We've all had the conversation, right? Hey, my uncle's sick, he's, he's dying, is he a believer? Well, I mean, he, he believes, but doesn't really follow. Is he a Christian? Well, he believes, but he doesn't really follow. This is a false dichotomy. Jesus called disciples to follow. How do we know if we're a Christian? We follow him. We follow him. We follow him into the cruciform life. It doesn't mean that we are perfect. It doesn't mean that we are perfectly mature, but it means that we follow Jesus. And we'll get more into this as we 
go through the passage. So today our assignment is, our question is, what is the cruciform life and how do we get it? What is the cruciform life and how can it be formed in us? You see, it's not something that just happens overnight. It's called sanctification. It takes your whole life to, to see the cross shape formed in you. And this is, I think, the question that Paul is sort of running after here as we study through the book of Philippians. Now, let's get a running start here. I want to go back and I want to start where Cody um, led us through last week just because I think it connects so beautifully to the passage that we're going to look at. So we're going to be in verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 17 and following, but I want to go back here to chapter 3, verse 10. And I want you to see Paul's logic. So in verse 10, Paul says, he's talking about how he... Um, the surpassing worth of knowing Christ compared to the, 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 the garbage of his former religious actions, right? And then in verse 10, he says, that I may know him, that's Jesus, and the power of his resurrection, and may, note the word, share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Does it sound familiar? It sounds like what I just read in Corinthians, right? That we would become like him in his death. That's the cruciform life. That's the life that takes the shape of the cross. That by any means possible, I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Now, I said to note that word share. The reason I want you to note it is because it is the same word that we saw at the beginning of the book when Paul said that he had partnership, fellowship. It's koinonia. It's community. Paul is saying that he desires in his life to become part of the fellowship of Christ's suffering. Isn't that interesting? In fact, Paul saw that as what he was chasing after. I want to become part of the, you know, as humans, we, we all love to be set apart by something that makes us special or unique. Like, like I'm part of the, whatever, I'm part of this gym, and, 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 or I go, I go to CrossFit, we're all CrossFitters, right, and I feel like I'm part of this special elite, or whatever the, the thing is. Paul's saying, I'm part of this community, I'm part of this fellowship, I'm part of this koinonia, and what binds us, what connects us is the suffering of Christ, the cross of Christ, that's what unites us. He says, and it's not just that it's part of my life, it's something I'm chasing after. I'm running after his cross. I want to live a life like he lived so that I can attain the resurrection that came after it. Isn't that amazing? It's amazing. Continue reading in verse 12. This is just review. Not that I've already obtained this, the resurrection, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it, the resurrection, my own. Because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are, listen, mature, think this way. So this is the sign of maturity. What is the sign of maturity? It is your willingness to step into the fellowship of Christ's suffering. Isn't that interesting? You know, we think, about, we think about these guys in Afghanistan, these guys and these gals in our heart. I mean, Maya, I've just been sick over that. Just been thinking about what would it be like to, to see overnight that, that now uh, that the Taliban has a list. I mean, some of these guys literally went in and, and legally changed their religion to Christianity. And, and now the Taliban knows who they are. They know where they live. And so they're fleeing. They're running into the mountains. This, this, this country, that the second fastest Christian nation in the world right now, uh, these guys are fleeing into the mountains and, and you know winter's coming. Can you imagine that? And, and I think about that, I'm thinking, look, why, Lord? Why would you allow that? Why would you, why would this, how could this possibly be a good thing? 
Yet, our Bibles are sitting here telling us that this puts them into a particular group, this particular group called the, for, the fellowship or the koinonia of Christ's suffering. Jesus was the ultimate persecuted being. And these guys now have this opportunity to be a witness to their persecutors, an opportunity, I'm not saying I envy them, but they are now in this particular group, they can relate with Jesus, the template of the perfect Christian, because he too was persecuted unto death. It's an amazing reality. So we pray for them. We pray for them, not just that God would keep them, we do, we pray for safety, but we also pray that God would use this fellowship of the cross as these men and women step into something that you and I have never ever had to even think about. We pray for them that that God would be glorified in this. So Paul says in verse 15, it's mature to think this way. If anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let hold true to what we have attained. Now, let's dive into today's text, verse 17. Brothers, he says, join, note this word, join in imitating me. Join in imitating me. Keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. What's Paul saying here? Paul is saying, hey, uh, Christians at Philippi, will you mimic me? We've heard Paul say this. He says it all the time, right? He says, hey, copy me, mimic me. Uh, Why would Paul say that? Okay, why would Paul say that? Well, first of all, we know that almost every other place that Paul says that he always includes this other little phrase, which is follow me as I follow Christ, okay? Follow me as I follow Christ. He's saying, hey, Philippi church, I want you to copy what I'm doing. Now, what's interesting about this is that that's actually the mechanism that Jesus invented for discipleship. Did you know that? Copying. You know, we're copycats by nature. Like, we just do it. Like, we do. Like, I I hear my kids talking sometimes, and I'm like, you you sound like your mom, you know? Or you you sound like me, or you sound like your friends, or whatever, or you sound like that stupid show you were just watching, which is the worst, right? Uh, but we do, we copy, we just do. And, and, and for us, we hear something like that, Paul saying, hey, copy me, and it feels weird for us in our Western senses. Part of the reason is because we have this false sense of individuality, where we actually think that we're creative and individual and unique, and, and we, we, we are locked in this sort of binary um, tug-of-war between wanting to fit in and stand out. That's like, that's high school, right? You're like, fit in, stand out, fit in. Stand out, don't be weird, be weird. Like, it, it, it's like everyone, you want to feel special, but then you don't want to, you know. That, so we, we struggle with that in the West because we have this, this false delusion of individuality where we think that the, the point of life is to be better than everyone else and to be individual and creative and clever, okay? Christianity, if you want to be part of that, just throw that in the garbage. It's not about being original. It's not about being clever. It's about being like Jesus, And what we need is we need people who are copying Jesus and then calling people to copy them. Not so we can be unique. You know, the church, like there's so many books out there about how to be a unique church. I don't care. I don't want to be a unique church. I want to be a biblical church. I want to be a church that looks like what Jesus intended the church to be. I don't want to be a unique Christian that that says unique things. I want to be a real Christian. I want to look like Jesus. And the call here into discipleship is a call to imitate. You know, the other reason we struggle with the idea of imitating is is that we all know Christians that we probably shouldn't imitate, (laughs) right? And in many ways, we're kind of terrified, like, well, maybe that's bad. Maybe someone shouldn't imitate me. You know, you ever terrify you that your kids are going to imitate you? Does it ever make you nervous? Yeah. Yeah, well, that's the reality. But I would just suggest something to you. 
I would suggest something to you, and notice what Paul says in verse 17. He says, brothers, join in imitating me and, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. So what Paul's calling these guys into is a plurality of imitation. The last thing in the world I want anyone to do is be like me, but I would like someone to imitate the best of me and the best of every other person in this body. The reality is Jesus was the full meal deal. You guys are not. Together, collectively, you are. Each of us have maybe one, maybe two of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Maybe each of us have a couple things that, that reflect the Christ, uh, Christ-likeness. Uh, and if I could take all of that, great. When I think about my discipleship, I think about my, how I've copied and mimicked other people. But I think I've taken the best of Jesus from each person. In a, in a multiplicity. And that's the beauty of the body. It's not like when we make disciples, or, hey, you just come do everything I do. You say, hey, come copy the good things, but then get in community with other Christ-like people. Our spiritual formation should be a conglomeration or a conglomerative imitation of all the best representations of Christ. Isn't that exciting? The different parts that we see of Jesus in each person. Now, I just want to ask you by way of application, could you or should you be asking someone to imitate you? Could you or should you? <laughs> this should be something that, that should provoke us to follow after Jesus in a, in a more particular way so that we can, like Paul, say, hey, look, you want to know what a Christian looks like? Follow me around. And I'm not just talking about when I'm at church and I got my best on. I'm talking about when, when I'm home with my family and my kids are crazy and, and I'm tempted to yell and freak out. You might need to see me do that so you can see what it looks like to repent of sin. <laughs> you know, one of the things we never let people watch us do is fail. Especially pastors, the worst at it, right? Yeah, you can watch me do well, but I don't want to... Okay, part of discipleship is learning how to repent, how to deal with your failures. One of my favorite stories, uh, uh, Jeff Vanderstel, he's a pastor, he's, he tells a story about how he had this kid living with him, and he was discipling him. Um, and, and this kid was sitting there in the living room, and Jeff and his wife started getting in a fight, right? And they're arguing, da 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 And the kid's like, oh, I'm going to get up and leave. And Jeff Vanderstel's all, nope, sit down. You need to see this. <laughs> And I'm like, that's a great picture of discipleship. Like, how do you fight with your wife? You're going to fight. How do you do it godly, right? How do you repent when you're done? How do you, how do you go back and sift through the parts that were maybe not so godly? So, so Paul, what Paul's doing here is he's continuing the work that Jesus did. He's calling Christians to follow him. Now listen, when Jesus called the disciples, he was calling them to come and mimic him. That's what the call to discipleship is. Now, we miss this because we didn't grow up in first century Palestine. We don't know first century Judaism, but the call to follow a rabbi was a call to come and copy them. That's what the call to be a Christian was. Jesus said, hey, come, uh, come apprentice me. Come apprentice the way of Jesus. You know, early Christians called themselves the way before they called themselves Christians. Why? Because Christianity isn't just a thing, it is a way. It is the way of following Jesus every day. And we call people to, uh, to Christ, we're not just calling them to a mental ascent, a conversion, and then walk away. We're calling them to a life of following, mimicking. And then we grow by calling people us to follow and mimic us. This is the mechanism Jesus designed in order to create disciples. Are we part of that mechanism? Are we following? Are we asking people to follow us? It's the cruciform life, the call to mimic the cruciform life. And then verse 18, Paul goes on, he says, for many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. 
Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, their glory, they glory in their shame with minds set on earth things. Now what Paul's doing here is he's saying, I want you to mimic me. I want you to mimic those who walk rightly. Don't mimic those who are, according to his words, called the enemies of the cross of Christ. Don't mimic these guys. Okay, now who are these guys? Who are these enemies of the cross of Christ? This is interesting, so tune in here. Uh, I thought I had that figured out when I first read that. I thought, oh, he's talking about the Judaizers. He's talking about the religious people. He's talking about the people that were, that were claiming Christ or Jesus wasn't really the Messiah. That's not who he's talking about. He already talked about them, remember? Last week, he talked about uh, the Judaizers. Now he's talking about an entirely different group. He's talking about an entirely different group. Well, how does he describe them? Notice, he says... We just read it. Enemies of the cross of Christ, verse 19, their end is destruction, so they're hell bound. Uh, their God is their belly. What does that mean? It means that the supreme authority in their life is the senses, sensuality. They are those who are ruled by, you know, I really want food right now. That's my primary concern. It's the material, it's the, it's the temporal, it's the sensual. They are those, Paul says, um, who are sinfully disoriented. He says their glory is their shame. In other words, the thing they should be embarrassed about, they actually glory in. And then they are, they're materially satiated. He says, specifically, they have mindset on earthly things. Now, how does that make them an enemy of the cross of Christ? You would think an enemy of the cross of Christ would be someone who is openly antagonistic against the, the cross, but that's not these guys. These guys are just, well, it sounds like they're just worldly. What makes them an enemy of the cross of Christ? I would suggest to you, and this is important, I would suggest to you that they are not enemies of the work of the cross. They are enemies of the life of the cross. They're enemies of the cruciform life they're not enemies in the sense that they would come against what the cross has accomplished. They're enemies in that they would come against what the cross has patterned for us. They are those that are calling the Philippians away from the cruciform life into a sensual life, into a life uh, lived for this world, for the temporal things. How interesting is that? The implications of that were hard for me to get my head around this week. So that means that if I'm calling somebody to a Christian life that does not include the cross-shaped life, I'm an enemy of the cross. Not an enemy of the work of the cross, but an enemy of the life of the cross. Interesting is that. How interesting is that? Anyone who minimizes or changes the believer's call to take up his or her cross is an enemy of the cross. There's more than one war front to the gospel. You know that? We often stress legalism in the church, particularly in the West. Hey, legalism is an enemy to the cross. It is. Anything that gets you to rely on your behavior or your uh, actions rather than the, the grace and glory of Christ is false gospel. That's an enemy of the cross. But there's another enemy of the cross. It's not just legalism. It's laziness or licentiousness. The other enemy of the cross is the one that says an easy believism, that says, okay, I got it, I'm good, and now I'm gonna go do whatever I want. I heard a really interesting thing the other day on a podcast. This guy was talking about um, Afghanistan. He was talking about Iran. So Iran is the fastest growing church in the world. Isn't that amazing? Could you stop and think about that? Where is the gospel exploding? 
where it's most persecuted. It's unreal. And now this guy was saying, when we first started working there, uh, I was really confused because he said, he said, we made all of these converts. And then when persecution started to ramp up, um, he said the church started to shrink. And I thought, wait a minute. Tertullian said the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. When we get persecuted, it's supposed to grow. He's like, what's going on? And he said, it clicked for me. I realized that I'd been making converts. I hadn't been making disciples. See, converts, when persecution comes, they flee. But disciples... When persecution comes, it tempers us. It purifies us. It strengthens our faith because it makes us cling to Christ. Persecution is what grows the church if what you're doing is making disciples. Paul is saying, watch out for those who would come and tell you that the life of following Jesus is actually a worldly life, a life that's about the pleasures of this world. He said, don't follow those guys. Don't copy those guys. Listen, there is no comfortable posture on the fence. There's just no, com- there's no comfortable way to sit on the fence. And Christ, frankly, doesn't allow it. A passive, world-oriented life is, in fact, actively Christ-opposing. These are hard words, but this is what Paul's getting at. Now look at verse 20. Now Paul, and I love this because Pastor Paul is a gospel-centered man. And what that means is, he's a gospel-centered pastor. What that means is he never puts the weight of an imperative on you unless he puts it with the corresponding declarative. What I mean by that is he never tells you what to do unless he tells you how you have the power to do it. He never tells you to do something heavy unless he says, and here's why you can do it. Here's the truth that corresponds with it. So he says, that watch out for these enemies of the cross. He says, imitate, imitate me. And then, notice in verse uh, 19, he gives us the power or verse 20, pardon me. He says, but our citizenship, now he's contrasting with those who are enemies of the cross. Our citizenship, those who live the cruciform life, is in heaven. And from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Okay, here's so, this is the best part of my job. I get to be a practitioner. And as a practitioner, I get to give you the medicine that you need. And I know everyone's stressed out. I know there's a lot of anxiety going on. And what Paul does here is he gives you the medicine that you need. He says, here's why you can do this. Three reasons. Number one, because of your true kingdom nationality. Your true kingdom nationality. It was so funny to me. I was thinking about what is everyone so stressed about? They're stressed about three things. Their bodies might die, their vocations might change, and our country might turn out to be absolutely tyrannical and terrible. Those are three scary things. I thought it was interesting here in verse 20 and 21 that Paul gives us hope in all three of those things. First, he says, you don't belong here. You don't live here. This is not your first kingdom citizenship. They would have understood this, by the way. These were, these were Roman citizens, mostly Roman citizens that lived in this outpost called Philippi. But they had this great hope knowing that Rome was where they truly belonged. Rome was truly, their citizenship belonged to this empire. Now, in the same way, Paul's appealing to that idea. He's saying, hey, listen, your true citizenship is not here. Now, I know I keep talking about Afghanistan, but this is just what's going on in the world right now. Okay, imagine if you were an American citizen in Afghanistan. Okay, what, what is your hope in right then? I need to get back to my country. There's hope because my country, in my country I will be safe. We need to think that way as Christians. 
We need to think that way. We need to think that way as we make decisions, as we process through how to, to interact with these realities. Our citizenship is not here. Are we Americans? Yes. That's your second citizenship. It's your second citizenship. It, it is. If you're a Christian, your first citizenship is in heaven. So take heart. There is hope. Doesn't matter how bad it gets governmentally, we have citizenship in a kingdom that is coming, in a king that is coming. Our true hope is in our kingdom national nationality. Our true hope is in our kingdom eschatologically. That means that Jesus is coming back and he's going to set up a better administration. And here's the here's the one I really want to press on. He also says that um, our hope is in our true as existential physicality. What do you mean by that, Sam? Notice that Paul's hope here for these guys is that they're going to get a new body. I don't know why we hardly ever talk about that in Christianity. You're going to get a new physical body. It'll be way better than the one you got right now. Now, I know no matter where you're at right now on this whole COVID thing. Either you're afraid the vaccine is going to kill you or afraid the disease is going to kill you. It doesn't matter. You have your opinion. But can I just tell you, either way, you're getting a new body. Maybe you took the vaccine and maybe everyone's right. Maybe you're going to die in two years. Or maybe you didn't take the vaccine and maybe everyone's right. Maybe you're going to die from COVID. Whatever. You're getting a new body, baby. It's going to happen. Jesus is coming back. His kingdom is going to be manifested and you get body 2.0. I can't, the, 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 the apostles talked about this so much, so much. What did Paul say back in chapter 3, verse 10? He said, we share in his suffering so that we can be made like his, uh, so we can attain to his resurrection from the dead. He says, particularly here in verse 21, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So the same power he's going to rule this world with is the same power he's going to use to raise your body and give you a new one. That's good news. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't have to think about getting sick or think about making good decisions, but what it does mean is that as Christians, this body was not meant to last it just wasn't. And our hope is not in it. Everybody just take a deep breath. Your citizenship isn't here. This government is not your hope. And your body is going to be regenerated, renewed into an eternal body. How do we know that? Because that's what happened to Jesus. And he is the template. But for now, where do we live? We live in the cruciform life. So we're not quite to the resurrection part yet. But we are in the cross part. We are to carry our cross. We are to walk in the shoes of our rabbi. And what is the cruciform life? The cruciform life is choosing to take up whatever God has asked us to do. And that should be it. Listen, Christians, that should be the main question on your mind right now. Not what is the government asking me to do. Not what is my peer group asking me to do. What is God asking me to do? And that goes for anybody in any situation. He is the one that should be making this decision for us because we are citizens of his kingdom. Just think about that. So we have the power to live in the cruciform life because of these realities. And then verse one, Paul gives us this call to stand firm. He says, therefore, brothers, therefore, meaning everything I just said, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm 
thus in the Lord, my beloved. I want you to note those two words, stand firm, stand firm. I can't be positive about this, but I think Paul is trying to get your mind there to see a Roman soldier. You know, they gave Romans cleats. Why did they give them cleats? So they wouldn't go backwards. <laughs> okay, they, they wanted them to dig in, to lock shields, and to not lose ground. The call here for Paul um, to these guys is to continue standing firm in the cruciform life, to not give way. Now, the implication here is that if you call someone to, to stand their ground, what's the implication? The implication is that something is attempting to steal their ground. Okay? Right now, you have an active enemy, the unholy trinity, God, or you have, you have the, the world of flesh and the devil, are pushing you and trying to keep you from living the cruciform life. Stand firm. Stand firm. Stand firm in what? Stand firm in the gospel. Stand firm in your resolve to believe the gospel. Do not let the enemy push you away from clinging to the cross in this particular moment. He says, stand firm. Now, we're going to end like this. We've got 10 minutes, and then we'll have some discussion. We're going to end like this. Paul, in the remainder of this passage, he's going to give some particulars of what this looks like to live in the cruciform life. So particulars of what it looks like to stand firm, to not lose ground. And the way I want to look at it is like this. I'm going to give you five ways... Five ways to stunt the formation of the cruciform life. So if you're sitting here and you're saying, I don't want to stand firm, I don't want to live the cruciform life, I'll tell you how. Five ways, okay? So you might write them down. Five ways to stunt the cruciform life in your, in your life. Five ways to not stand firm. Number one, let hairline fractures in gospel community go unchecked. Hairline, you know what a hairline fracture is? It's not like a full-on broken bone. It's like within the bone, there is a very small fracture. I had one one time. I got a stress, stress fracture from, from ramping up my mileage. She was trying to train for a marathon, and I just thought I was tougher than I am or whatever, and I went out and ran too much. And I didn't know it was a fracture. I thought it was just a sore muscle, so I just ran harder. And you know what happened? The more harder I ran, more harder. the harder I ran, the worse it got. What was the prescription in that? I need to stop running. I need to stop. Okay. What Paul's going to do here is he's going to address, out of the blue seemingly, he's going to address this situation, this hairline fracture that he brings up. And it's, it's worth putting into the letter. Look at what he says. He says, I entreat Iodia and I entreat Syntyche. We don't know who these ladies are, but they were part of the church at Philippi. To agree in the Lord. In other words, hey, ladies, you need to get along. You need to figure it out. You need to work it out. <laughs> really, Paul? You're going to put them on blast like that? You know, these were circulatory letters. I mean, they passed them from church to church to church. Like, can you imagine how, like, Eodia is feeling? Like, really, Paul? Everyone's going to read that. My mom over in Ephesus is going to read that. Come on, you know. He's like, ladies, get along. He says, agree in the Lord. And he says in verse 3, yes, I ask you also, true companion. Who's that? Well, we don't know. It's someone in the church of Philippi. But he's asking them, help these women. Help them sort this out. Help them work this out. These women who I've labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. So Paul, out of the, no, out of the blue, he stops and he says, hey, you ladies need to figure this out. Why is that important? Why is he bringing that up? Okay, why is he bringing that up? Uh, the reason is, first of all, because it's not a personal issue, it's a gospel mission issue. Notice that? This isn't just some, some, some petty squabbling. This is, hey, you guys are getting in the way of the mission. You need to stop. You need to figure it out. You need to work through it. But not only that, Paul understands that every big problem started with a small problem. 
Every big problem started with a small problem. He's trying to catch this hairline fracture before it becomes something worse. He wants to deal with it. And he appeals to the body to come alongside and help these two ladies figure it out. So, number one, if you want to stunt the formation of the cruciform life, just let little petty uh, disunities fester and fracture. Just ignore them. Pretend like they're not there. Let them squeeze you out of the body of Christ. You guys, I know hundreds of Christians, or at least I hope they're Christians, that are completely removed from the body of Christ because of little petty petty hairline fractures that were not addressed. And they grew, and they grew, and now they say, I will not go to church. Don't let that happen. Let me try to put this really clearly. Failure, confession, confrontation, repentance, forgiveness, and reunification should be the daily diet of a truly missional church. If we're not making each other mad, then we're not really growing. If we're not having to forgive each other, if we're not having to repent to one another, if we're not having to ask for grace for one another, if we're not working through things, then we're either sweeping it all under the rug, which many churches do. We're living a mile wide and an inch deep. We're shallow. Or we're just holding everything in. May we be a church. I just want to call you. You know, we're a pretty new church, so none of us know each other that well. So there's kind of this honeymoon thing going on. Like, oh, everyone's great at Philippi. <laughs> just wait. You're going to hate me. You're going to hate everybody else. Okay. You got to forgive each other. You got to work through stuff. And part of that is dealing with it. Talk about it. I love that Paul's not like, hey, no one read the bottom part because it's personal. I don't want to out anybody. Paul's just like, hey, you two ladies, figure it out publicly for the whole world. Now it's in the Bible. Can you imagine? It's in the Bible forever, man. Number two, second way to stunt the cruciform life is to let joy become a noun instead of a verb. Let joy become a noun instead of a verb. Look at Paul. This is a a famous verse. Many of you might have it memorized. Verse four, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. He says it twice. It's probably important. What I want you to see just real briefly here is I want you to see that that Paul saw joy as a verb, not a noun for the Christian. Okay, joy is a choice. Now, you can't choose to get out of your circumstances, but you certainly can choose to believe the gospel, which reminds you of the uncircumstantial realities that give us joy. Joy is a natural byproduct of spiritual surrender. Did you know joy is a fruit of the Spirit? Joy is what comes for the Christian. Joy, I'm not talking about happiness. I'm not talking about fleeting emotion. I'm talking about deep Christian joy. It comes when we recognize that the spirit should be the one in control and we surrender. I'm not gonna go there because we don't have time, but Hebrews 12, one and two, it says that, that Jesus, the, um, the original faith racer, the, the author and champion of our faith, he ran the race for the joy that was set before him. How do we stand firm? How do we live the cruciform life? How do we take a a life that looks like the shape of a cross? We have joy as our motivator, not guilt, not determination, not shame, not pressure. We have joy as the motivator. The joy of what's at the end of the cross. That's That's what drove Jesus to be able to surrender. Joy, and Paul knows that. He knows these Philippians are not gonna get anywhere without joy as the, 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 the engine of their life. So he calls them to joy. He calls them to joy. So if you want to stunt the growth of the, growth of the cruciform life, let joy be a noun. Assume it's something that you're just waiting to get in the mail. <laughs> when is my joy gonna come? No, go after it. Believe the gospel. Allow that truth and that reality to fill your screen. Verse five. Let your reasonableness 
also can be translated gentleness, be known to everyone. This is just a side note. Think about that verse this week as you interact with people that you do not agree with. You don't have to agree with them. Nobody agrees right now about anything, by the way. <laughs> let your reasonableness, let your gentleness be known. We've got to love each other. My goal for the next six months is to keep you guys all together. Okay, we've got to love each other through this. We've got to love each other through this, guys. Half of you don't agree with the other half, and that's okay. But we've got to be gentle. We've got to be reasonable. We've got to be kind to one another. Because at the end of this, we are still one family. And Satan would love nothing more than to disunite us. Let's work through our hairline fractures. Let's talk through them. It says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. And then I really want you to tune in here, okay? I really want you to tune in. Because this is prophetic for us. The Lord is at hand. Notice that. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. Guys, I didn't pick this text. This is just where we're at. Praise God. Do not be anxious about anything. Oh, surely anything doesn't mean that in the Greek, right? I mean, it probably means most things. No. Do not be anxious about anything. Well, that's just crazy, Paul. I mean, I wake up in the morning, I'm anxious. I am. So what's he talking about? Well, he's going to tell you. He says, do not be anxious about anything. Here's the key. But in everything, well, he probably doesn't mean everything. He just probably means some things, right? No. Everything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. And the result, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, meaning you'll have peace that you can't even cognitively file, will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. Let me break down this promise. This is beautiful. This is beautiful. What Paul is saying here, by the way, number three, if you, if you want to stunt the cruciform life, let anxiety free range in your life. If you want to stunt the cruciform life, let anxiety free range. You know what free range is. Just let it go. Don't check it. Don't sift it. Don't question it. Paul is saying here, you've got to grab your anxiety and you've got to deal with it. You've got to deal with it. How do we do that? He says you do that by bringing it before the Lord. So I'm going to share something with you that was very, very, very practical and helpful for me. I wake up in the morning and I'm anxious. Anybody else? Okay, wake up in the morning and I'm anxious. From the second my feet hit the ground, I'm already sinning. From the second my feet hit my ground, I'm already not trusting. I'm already not believing. The second my feet hit the ground, I'm already remembering stressful things from yesterday. I'm already thinking about things I got to do. I'm not, I'm not kidding you. Sometimes I sit down and I think, okay, what just stressed me out? It's been 20 seconds from my bed to the living room to open my Bible. What just stressed me out? And I'll think, I, I, like 10 things, 10 things. Sometimes I stress in my sleep. I wake up and I'm like, oh, I was dreaming about stressing. <laughs> okay, so as a Christian, what are we supposed to do with that? Now, I know, I understand that there is anxiety that you can't always pin to a thought and let's just put that aside. I'm talking about the, the anxiety that you can connect to something, okay? Realistic, tangible anxiety. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to, 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 to throughout the day, uh, particularly in the morning, I want you to stop and we need to interact with the Lord and I want you to go back into your brain. I call it cleaning your desktop. Okay, you know what? Your, your desktop picks up things all day long, especially when you work on your computer all day. Like me, I'll have like five screenshots and, and, uh, and three files and this and that and it just gets cluttered. And so every few days, you know, you gotta stop and clean your desktop. And I have three files on my desktop. 
okay? And everything goes into one of those three files. Boom, 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 boom. Otherwise, I can't use my desktop. It's cluttered. So I want you to do the same thing with the Lord throughout the day. I want you to stop, and I want you to put everything in three files. You ready for the three files? Here they are. Sin, sacrifice, or surrender. Sin, sacrifice, or surrender. You need to ask yourself, what is this anxiety that I'm feeling related to? First of all, is it sin? Okay, in other words, have I committed a sin and I'm stressed about it, I'm guilty about it, I'm worried about it? Okay, if it is, that's great. There's good news for you. Christ has paid for that sin. There is a mechanism to deal with the guilt and shame from that sin. It's called believing the gospel, confessing it to one another so that you can be free from that. So if it's sin, deal with it. Put it in that folder. Confess it to the Lord. If need be, confess it to someone else, depending on what the specific of it is. Believe the gospel. Okay, that's one file. The next file is sacrifice. Is there something here that's stressing me out because I need to make a decision? I need to, something is required of me. That's most of the stress that I have. <laughs> you know, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? Um, so that category, you bring it to the Lord and you say something like this, Lord, I don't know what to do here. Will you please help me? Will you give me wisdom? You bring it before the Lord and then you leave it there. Okay, now you don't gotta let, you don't gotta let it roll around in your head all day. You've already placed it before the Lord and you say, God, will you please convict me? Will you press me? Will you lead me? Will you guide me? Will you impress where you want me to go with this? And then there's a third file and this is called surrender and that's the stuff you just need to put it in the file and never pull it out again. Stuff that you cannot change. There's no action that you can take that will change that. What if my kids, someday they grow up and, and they hate me? No. Surrender that. God, that's your choice. You're good. I love you. I'm putting that in that file and I'm going to let you deal with it. You, that's your jurisdiction. That's above my pay grade. Three files. Sin, sacrifice, surrender. Sin, deal with it. Repent, confess, believe the gospel. Be free. You are free. Sacrifice, okay, bring it before the Lord. Wrestle, ask him for wisdom. Come back to it. Surrender, put it in that file and give it to him. Something about that, I don't know what it is, but what Paul is saying here is he's saying, take every anxiety and put it before me. Take every anxiety and put it before me. We gotta practice that. And it, just, a, just a pro tip, okay, um, do it, at the times that you know you get most anxious. Okay, for me, I don't know what it is about. It's 7 in the morning and 3 p.m. <laughs> it's like, those are the times, man, where I start to feel overwhelmed. I'm like, 3 p.m., I've had three meetings in a row, and I've said all these words I regretted saying, and, and I'm just like, oh, like I need to sit down and file all that. My desktop's cluttered. Okay, I shouldn't have said that, Lord. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Okay, yeah, that, I need to pray about that. That's, that's a decision. Okay. Uh, yep, can't control that. Well, that goes in that file. You need to do it. You need to do it throughout the day, all day. And you do it with Jesus. He is the best counselor. He's the best of friends. He is so helpful. You know, we all pay counselors. That's fine. We, we can pay counselors. And, and that's helpful. But man, Jesus is just standing by. It hit me the other day. I just started praying. I was like, hey, I could pray whenever I want. It's silly, but it's like, I don't have to schedule an appointment. I don't have to go on Google calendars. I'm just like, Lord, can I talk to you for a minute? I need infinite wisdom. Who could I talk to? Oh, man. It's silly that we don't do it more, isn't it? Notice that Paul starts that sentence by saying these words, the Lord is at hand. What does that mean? It means he's here, he's active, he's present, he's involved. You know, in the Great Commission, when Jesus sent out the disciples, you know what he started off saying? He said, I have overcome the world. And then he ended it by saying, he said, go make disciples, teach them, teach them about me. And then he said, and I will be with you, even unto the end of the age. 
What a comforting reality. He is at hand. He's at hand. He's here. He's involved. His spirit is within this world, within you working. I'm so thankful for that. And one last thing here, verse 8. Number four, if you want to sabotage the cruciform life, let darkness and negativity have free real estate in your mind. Free real estate in your mind. We give so much stuff free real estate in our minds. We give so much stuff. Look at what Paul says in verse eight. He says, finally, brothers, whatever's true, whatever's honorable, whatever's just, whatever's pure, whatever's lovely, whatever's commendable, if there is any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Think about them. You know, I gotta confess, it's like there's something about darkness that just is entertaining, isn't it? It's not always, I'm not always necessarily talking about ethical or immoral things. I'm just talking about darkness. It's like, it's like news, headlines. Why are we so attracted to that? It's like, oh, something crazy's gone. People got blown up. Oh my goodness, like, what's going on? And, and we're drawn into that. And I don't think that's always a bad thing, but I think here's what I just would like to exhort you to watch for. And I think, I think Pastor Paul here is reminding us of, when you fill your mind with darkness all the time, you start to become callous to it. Okay, so this morning I got here. I get here really early on Sundays. And I was here and I was going through my sermon and I was thinking about this point and I was feeling convicted. Um, Lord, am I ready to respond to dark things? Or am I so used to seeing them on the screen and in our life all the time that I don't even, I'm not even affected by them? I'm not kidding you. I go across the street to get some paper towels and I walk out the door and I hear a woman screaming bloody murder across the street. And then I walk about 10 feet and I'm greeted by fresh vomit from the last homeless person that slept out there because they sleep out there every day and I saw the vomit and I heard the screaming and you know what I thought? That's pretty normal. This woman was on drugs. She's tweaking. She's freaking out. They tw- I mean, they, it's constant down here. I mean, these, these people are fried. They, they, they're having, I don't know if they're having demonic stuff going on, if their brains are, de- but they're freaking out. They're screaming at cars. She's screaming the F word over and over and over and over again. She's freaking out. And you know what I was so convicted by was how little that bothered me. I almost started weeping as I was walking to Safeway thinking, that should bother me. And it, for some reason, it just feels so normal. Now, partly because I hear that all the time downtown Grants Pass. But also I just think, you know, how much of my life has just been crammed full of dark things to the point where, where I mean, we watch shows about dark, we watch murder mysteries and we watch documentaries about all these hard, terrible, we watch the news constantly, our phones are blowing up with negative, evil things all the time. Now I'm not saying let's go put our heads in the sand, but can we just listen to what Paul just said? Just straight up, what he said, he says, whatever is good, whatever is noble, whatever is true, whatever is pure, whatever is just, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, put that before your brain. We are addicted to darkness. I don't know what it is. And here's my fear. My fear is that when real dark things come that I need to deal with, I will become callous to those. I this picture this week of a dad sitting there watching the news, angry at the government and angry at what is going on and angry at the Taliban and angry at ISIS-K and angry at the president and all the while his son is behind a locked door dealing with real evil and this, the dad is oblivious to it 
and all of his emotion is being channeled towards the television screen. That's wrong. It's wrong. I know so many parents that refuse to engage with the evil that is within their home. Yet we are spending our emotion on evil things we cannot change, cannot affect. And another picture of a mom in my head just sitting there on her phone, scrolling through Facebook, angry, frustrated at all the things that people were saying about vaccines or whatever, and all the while her daughter is just thinking about taking her life in the room next door, and she doesn't even know. What do you do? I mean, this is real life. Are we oblivious to the evil that's right in front of us? Are we oblivious? I mean, am I so caught up in what's going on in the Middle East that I can't be affected by the woman who's screaming across the street? I don't know what I'm supposed to do, but I at least prayed for her. I at least wanted to feel broken for her. I at least wanted to feel the weight of that. Paul is saying, look, I mean, these guys lived in, these guys were Roman citizens. They lived in Philippi. It's one of the darkest places. There's a prostitute on every corner, a cult worship center. And you don't think that these guys had to deal with this stuff? You don't think they had to decide what they were going to watch? You don't think they had to decide whether they're going to go to gladiatorial arenas and watch people get eaten alive? You don't think they had to make those kinds of decisions? They did. And Paul is saying, hey, you're going to have to look at dark things, but fill your screen with what is good so that when the dark things that you have to deal with come, you can deal with them. We've got to think about more positive things. And I don't just mean fluffy, light, fake. I mean the gospel. We've got to fill our screens with the gospel so that we can deal with the darkness that God is calling us to deal with in our own homes and in our own community. Amen? So take a word from Pastor Paul here. Fill your screen. And then lastly, number five, if you want to ruin the cruciform life, if you want to derail the cruciform life, let passivity replace practice as your definition of discipleship. Let passivity replace practice. As you look at what he says, we'll close here in verse nine. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. And the God of peace will be with you. There's a theological term called an inclusio. It means when Paul starts with a thought and then he ends with a, st- a thought, it means that everything within that thought belongs to the same thought. So where did Paul start? He started by saying, imitate me. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. And where does he end? He says, imitate me. Imitate these things. Practice these things. Do we think of Christianity as a practice? I love that doctors and lawyers call their, their place of work practice. I like that. Because it's taking what they've learned and then it's using it. It's a practice, right? And they're, they're still learning. <laughs> As Christians, do we think of the faith, do we think of this following Jesus thing, this, this, this active cruciform life as a practice, something we do, something we walk in, something we go after, or have we minimized it down to a mental ascent? Yes, I, I believe that maybe Jesus is real and maybe he did die for my sins, I believe. Okay, that's not a Christian. A Christian follows Christian follows. May we have this mind in us, Paul says in Philippians 2, we have this mind in us that was in Christ who took the form of a servant and humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. So what is your statement of faith? What is it about you that people will look at and go, there's something about that? I suggest to you that, that a cross necklace is not enough. There's nothing wrong with it, but it's not enough. I would say that it is the shape of the cross in your life that needs to be seen. When someone sees you do something that is radically submissive to God, that is radically honoring to his name, that is radically loving, 
that is willing to take the posture of the suffering servant by whose stripes we were healed. We ought to be the most broken servants of all when the, the life of Christ is formed in us. So I would invite you this week, would you pray about that? Would you consider that? What does it mean to live the cruciform life? And as you make hard decisions, I know that you guys are making hard decisions right now. They're hard. I don't care who you are. They're hard. Consider the question. I can't tell you what you're supposed to do. I can't tell you whether you should send your kids to school, wear a mask, get a vaccine. I'm not going to tell you that's not my job. But I'm going to tell you this. Consider what is the most cross-like thing that you can do. What does it look like to submit myself fully to God in this moment? What's he asking you to do? Ask him. Well, what are you asking me to do? I want to be right before you, Lord. That's what makes us Christians. Amen? I used all our time, so I apologize for that. But I would encourage you guys, you have the questions, take those home. Talk about it with your spouse. Talk about it with your friends. Take someone to coffee this week. Maybe grab some lunch with somebody after church today. Invite them over. Talk through those questions uh, and uh, see what the Lord might yield. Amen? Would you guys stand with me? Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth, here in Grant's Pass, as it is in heaven. Lord, give us today our daily provision. Lord, the faith to believe the gospel, the strength to take up our cross, the strength to be weak. Lord, help us forgive our debts or forgive our debts as we forgive our debtors, Lord. Lord, lead us not into temptation. Yours is the kingdom, God. Lord, I just pray, Father, over this church, Lord, this supernatural body, this family, with you, Jesus, as the head, Lord, that in the, in the days to come, as we have to make hard decisions, God, that we would do so, uh, that, that our, our chief concern would be honoring you. And Lord, we love you. We thank you for the gospel. We thank you for the hope that we have, that our citizenship is not here, that we have new bodies on order. They're coming. And Jesus, you have taken the victory. And Lord, there's great hope in you. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.